This is Body Talk, where we explore your inner universe. With us today on Body Talk is James Earls. James is originally from a little town just outside of Belfast, Northern Ireland, and he has been a manual and movement therapist for over 30 years. We originally met, he's, he's given me a funny look now, so I might be exaggerating the timeline a little bit here, but he's been at this quite a long time. He and I originally met in the anatomy trades program, which he taught for and brought to Europe. He's the author of the book Born to Walk. He also went through the Gray Institute's program, and he has an incredible new book out called Understanding the Human Foot, an Illustrated Guide to Form and Function for Practitioners. James, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, David. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for the, the lovely, if slightly aging uh, introduction. Um, so it's lovely to be here and to, to see you. So it's, thanks. It, you're, you're so welcome. I am just so excited about this book. Uh, every, every year, I try to find a new workbook to work through for my practice, just to kind of deepen my understanding of things. And I think my book for the next year is going to be your book because it is the most comprehensive thing I've ever found on the human foot from an anatomical perspective, a physiological perspective, a biomechanical perspective, an evolutionary perspective. Uh, well done, sir. What, what inspired you to do this? Well, first, thank you very much. Thank you for, well, thank you for giving such a, an introduction. Thank you for even spending the time to read it. Um, I appreciate that. Um, what inspired me, it was, I think initially it was my frustrations with the anatomy that I had been taught. I've gone through many different, different trainings and every time it was the a replication of the same story, the anatomical kind of position, the actions, the, this, this and that. And it was really only gradually over accumulating those trainings that I started getting a little bit kind of different senses of, oh, there are other ways, other languages, other vocabularies that we can start to, to use. And it was particularly with the, the Gray Institute that you mentioned, it was my, my movement training um, with Gary Gray, the so-called father of function. And he really opened my eyes to what I would call the kind of the, the tensegrity movement approach. You know, mm -hmm. So you mentioned anatomy trains, you know, I, we, with anatomy trains and Tom's work, we got into the, the idea of the body being connected. And with Gary Gray's work, I really got a sense of, oh, and the movement, every, every bone, every joint, every tissue is kind of correlated in this beautiful, reasonably predictable symphony that whenever we make a movement, that we can actually track it down through the rest of the body in a way that that is really useful as a therapist for both assessment and creating interventions. So I was like, wow, that to me, that was just the vocabulary that I got from them. Mm -hmm. Just really opened my eyes and kind of, kind of exploded my, my, my brain of because like, like, wow, um, why is it taking me at that stage, I think 25 years of anatomy experience to get a kind of true functional appreciation of the the interaction through the body that makes me think of the old tai chi quote when move one thing everything moves yeah which i'm paraphrasing slightly so how did how did that how did that affect you 
I think you alluded to how it affected you as a practitioner, but how did it change your your daily life? I'm curious. You know, it um it made me more appreciative of just the, of the, the the interactions. You know, we've um I'm sure many of your listeners are practitioners. We've all kind of gone through the 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 trainings that say, oh, we know that you know we we're not working on the the side of pain. We're trying to we're finding the source of pain, and there are different models that are out there, and one of my frustrations was it was always the the imposition of a model onto the human anatomy like, mm. and with the the grave institute working kind of true functional approach it was well, actually we were just looking at the anatomy it's like the only model that we're using is the the model of anatomy um great and gary gray's kind of one of his models is the, the truth of movement so all we were talking about was just what happens with the anatomy whenever you make that movement so it's not tied up with any philosophy it's not tensegrity it's not lines and slings and bits and pieces it's just the reality of movement um, and and so that that encouraged me to more open thinking of my, my own exercise program which is kind of ebbs and flows a little bit um, and being appreciative of just being able to see how people move with a lot more clarity, a lot more understanding, and, and provided a vocabulary that was that was useful, because the the anatomy vocabulary that I had been given just didn't didn't cut it. It it actually created as many confusions as it did clarities. So so I tried to, in writing the book, try to get as many of those. And Karen Gray also often talks about gifts and um, mm-hmm. the, the gift programming, but he talks about kind of giving gifts. And to me, it was, can I, can I give the gift of the insights that I've been given to people that are starting to try to learn anatomy? So it was very much in, in writing the book, can I put into this what I wish I had have been told 30 years ago? Right. Whenever, whenever I started, um, and it's very much focused on understanding rather than the rote learning. Right. And I th- there's a wonderful position to be in to say, I'm going to create the book I wish I had all those years ago. And kind of a rising tide lifts all boats. I like what you said about the let's not impose an outside model onto the body. Let's look at the body as the model. And what does that tell us about movement? And that all goes back to shape. And I think yeah. I remember from back in the day, I don't know if they still do it on anatomy trains, the old shape matters thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when it comes to the bones in the feet and the bones of the legs, uh, the shape really does matter, doesn't it? Absolutely. They create the, the, the interface for the, the way in which we deal with the, the forces that are acting through us. And of course, the forces are also shaping the bones. So there's this kind of beautiful play back and forth. So yes, a lot of the, the, the form is being created through our genetic processes, but it's also we, we are, we're dynamic in the, in the creation and the designing. We are the architects of our own tissues. And so I wanted certainly to get a lot, as much as possible of that story into the book as well, being able to appreciate that interplay and how that works. And some of these ideas come from an architect, a bridge architect, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Darcy Wentworth Thompson, is that right? 
Dorothy Whitmer Thompson was the yes. Um, I'm not sure he he certainly was influential in, in within architecture. He was um, lecturer, all round genius in university. Okay, I just want to hear that name. I get a picture of a very specific bridge in my head. Dorothy Whitmer Thompson. Um, yes, there, it does evoke a certain certain image. Mm-hmm. Um, so his his wonderful texts on growth and, and form is one of the underpinning initial um texts on the analysis of shape and form and he he started a, a process that i had been initially or lately studied um as part of a, a master's degree in what's called geometric morphometrics and what he was trying to do in early 1900s was to find a way to mathematically compare differences of shape and form in biological structures. So how can we intelligently compare the differences between a human skull, a baboon, and a gorilla skull? So he he applied different mathematics using using grids and looking at the deformations of -hmm. the grid. And that two-dimensional approach has now developed through the late 1900s and certainly into the 2000s when we've got more powerful computers. Mm-hmm. We can now do very powerful three-dimensional analysis so we can mathematically compare the shapes and, and intelligently um, interpret the deformations, the changes that have happened as species have evolved. So we can compare species and we can compare within a species as well. So there's a lot of that um, within the, within the text um, mm-hmm. as well, but without going into a lot of the, the detail of geometric morphometrics um, is a huge, complicated, frustrating, and, and also um, it's very powerful and mm-hmm. also quite limited um, in its approach <laughs> because because it's using it's using individual markers. You know, there mm-hmm. um, it's you know can only look at certain bones. Um, it can't look at the whole structure. It can't replicate all of the stresses and strains that are going under. But it's certainly that it gives you a lot of information about how a bone actually works. And you applied some of that information directly to the the curve of the femur, did you not? Could you I did. That so, a yeah, um, that was um, my my thesis project for the for the masters because there's a the idea. So if you if you remember some of the things about the Neanderthals, it was whenever the, the bones were first first found, they thought it was the the bone of a Cossack warrior, and um, because the the femur was quite curved anteriorly, mm-hmm. posteriorly, and that kind of myth and that story kind of went on um, for, for quite some time then until they actually realized it wasn't wasn't just a recent bone, it was actually older and possibly a different species, Neanderthal. As modern human, we still have, most of us still have that anterior-posterior curve, but it's, it's lessened and it's reduced, but it's still there. And there's, a, there's been an ongoing debate in the literature, many different researchers have looked at it. And thankfully, the, the head of department I was working with is one of the leading lights of, of this approach. And he he grabbed me and said, you've been talking about stress and strain, about tension and compression. I want you to do this project to look at why the long bones, some of them, the femur, are curved. Because it actually doesn't make sense. Because if you, if you take a, a bent rod... And if you load at either end, 
it'll just bend. There's many, there are many different kind of interpretations of why that is. Well, does it act like a spring? And so there are some work, some researchers say, well, whenever you look at um, the strain um, uh, gauges in many of the, the different animals that they've used for these experiments, um, we measure the strain. And so the bone is being used as a spring. And, you know, that, that gets us excited because you know, it's like fascia and bone and kind of, and, and they're all springs <laughs> and it's elastic. And, and there's a, a possible flaw in that thinking because actually if the bone is bending repeatedly it's going to keep growing in that direction right It'll, because of the because of the forces so it's it's trying to look for equilibrium and there's flaws the flaws in the in the methodology because in putting the string gauges onto the live animals they're mm -hmm. cutting through the connective tissue to get to the bone yeah, which is going to alter the way the bone is used. Which alters bone, which alters the 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 force environment around the thigh. Mm -hmm. So there's no way of actually in vivo replicating the true force environment that a bone is receiving. So one of the advantages of this approach that Dorsey Wentworth Thompson um, set off is that you can actually take a bone. And you can scan it. You can have a, a th create a three D model, so you can have a, a representation on the screen in three dimensions, and you can recreate as accurately as you possibly can the the muscle forces around it. So you can you can kind of virtually attach the muscles, mm -hmm. and then you can take load measurements. You can use all kinds of um, in vivo measurements to try and replicate the computer model. And whenever it's done in a certain way, certain a certain degree of accuracy, which I, for a master's program, I, I did not have that time. And uh, that was my question: Did you build this model? And where's the well, computer? I built a I built a, a, a cheap and cheerful version of it and got <laughs> <laughs> got very close to the results. So in the mm -hmm. in the uh, designing uh, process of this, this experiment, you have to go and do a literature search and just kind of designing, designing, chatting, getting it done. And then I, I, I was having this idea. It was like, oh, I've got absolute clarity of what I need to do. I need to get my femur scanned. I need to get the muscles kind of scanned as well. Mm -hmm. I need to like have the measurements. So, you know, I can do all that. I can get that done. I've got, you know, connections and contacts. So I can do that and then we can run it. And then the next day, I found a paper from Germany by Duda and all that had done exactly the same thing. They had got one of their, their students, they'd scanned them, they'd mm -hmm. replicated and their results showed. So they, they replicated the forces at heel strike mm -hmm. and the forces at toe off. And in that force environment of all of the muscles surrounding the femur, attaching to the femur and surrounding it led to the bone going under almost complete pure compression wow which makes perfect functional sense it's like you don't want the bone to bend when it's under maximal strain no, no in its support environment yeah. so the the contraction the force through the, the surrounding myofascia actually minimizes the deformation within the bone that's that's so cool. That's kind of so tensegrity friendly. That's you know, mm -hmm. so rather than the going to the spring idea, but it's also not, not saying that the, the bone can't act as a spring because it will deform under other loadings. 
uh, under maximal the maximal repeated loading at heel strike and toe off, it's under compression. Was the the finding of not quite my study, which was cheap and cheerful, but <laughs> under the the more expensive, properly German led um, experiment, mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. They, this was that must have been incredibly validating though to like literally the next to go oh here's somebody else with the same idea who did the same thing. It was nice. Yes. So I went, yeah, I was, it's kind of, it is partly the excitement. Yes. Somebody else had the same idea. And it's like, oh, bugger. Somebody's, somebody's <laughs> already done it. Um, but they did it with much more, um, many more resources. They had, uh, yes, they, they had more robust funding yes. to do what they did. We'll have to get a, a link to that particular paper and put it in the show notes. I'd like You talked about how this pure compression model was very tensegrity friendly. And that's uh, one of the things that I like that, that you bring to this book is this blending of classical origin and insertion anatomy with modern tensegrity and biotensegrity theory, because I think they need to exist in the same continuum. We can't really have one without the other, though it's not always that way uh, in people's minds. I know I've I've taught it for I, for many years. The tensegrity idea: if you make a make a change in tension in one area, it could go anywhere. That there's a certain truth to that. And we are also, it's the, the going back to that initial idea, that the truth of our anatomy. So we are not the accumulation of the bits, but we still need to be able to understand the bits to understand how the whole thing works. Yeah. We can we can jump, we can, we can, we can land um, on on the forefoot because we have a soleus and a gastrocnemius. So well, it's you know, they're there, they're measurable, they're definable, they're encased within certain bags of fascia. It's they're they're definite. So I need to have the balance between understanding the bits, but having the wider view of how does this actually all work in context. And one of the the themes of the the book was from from kind of the the well ish the hero of the book, um, Dudley J. Morton. He had a, a beautiful phrase, which he called the, the foot is a total biotic complex. It's like biotic. Yes. Not bionic. Yes. <laughs> biotic. Yes, yes. Just making sure everybody heard that correctly. A total <laughs> yes. biotic complex. I've never heard that word before, other than reading yep. it from your book. Yep. And I thought that's, that's brilliant. You have to see the whole darn thing in context. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense if you just look at the individual bits. Mm-hmm. But the individual bits don't make any sense without the function, without the context. The bones don't make any sense if you don't understand the muscles. The muscles don't make any sense if you don't understand the, the, the joints. And the joints and the muscles and the tendons and everything don't make any sense if you don't look at how we actually use it. And that's part of the frustration of trying to write a bleeding book of how the heck, what, what order do you do that in? Where do you start? Where do you start? Where do you start? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> what, yeah. What, what's the entry point? Yeah. And so it was, you know, that was one of the, the very few, for me, very few things to be thankful about the extension of lockdown for me was like what I thought might be a couple of month process became um, seven, eight, nine months of occasional frustration and occasional breakthroughs. Mm-hmm. So how did you happen upon Morton and crown him as the, as the hero? I, I first came across him doing, I did a barefoot running uh, training with a guy called uh, Lee Saxby. Mm-hmm. He was working with uh, Vivo Barefoot, the minimalist shoe company based yeah. in, in London. And and he was a big fan. So he 
mentioned so both his writings and then particularly talking about Morton's foot. And, and what is a Morton's foot? Yeah, I think there is some confusion because it's some people think it's the longer second toe, mm-hmm. um, which it's it it's not in any of my reading of Mr. Morton. He wasn't so concerned about the longer second toe. He's much more concerned about the relatively longer se- um, second metatarsal. So it's the positioning of the first and second MTP joints, so the metatarsal phalangeal joints, and if. The second one is a little more distal to the first, mm-hmm. and it creates a kind of what single point rocker. So as you come up into toe extension, you're coming up onto kind of one metatarsal head rather than mm. the kind of balance and security of two metatarsal heads, which would be the, the base of the first and the base of the second. Yeah, so doing that, I, I'm in my bare feet right now, so I'm trying to replicate that with my bunionated biotic complex (laughs) (laughs) so with bunion you're probably going to have probably without seeing your foot i'm probably going to have something of a potentially functional morton's foot i do because of the deviation of the 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 first um, metatarsal i do there's actually i don't have you seen this there's this new bunion surgery that looks like uh having seen the the illustrations of it i'm forgetting what it's called because i just became aware of it within the last month where it looks like rather than going in and doing all this shaving and cutting and scraping and basically carpentry with very expensive tools they go in and put in like a multi a multi-tensioning brace to bring the bones more into alignment with each other are you familiar with that at all i have not come across that no but sounds like something I should be checking out. Yeah, because I, I want your recommendation, Dr. Earls, almost Dr. Earls. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned there were there were some uh, trials and tribulations in the writing process. What was uh, what was what was the most what was the most challenging part of putting this book together for you? I think making decisions such as do I put in the uh, proximal distal attachments and the actions of the individual muscles. Or do I leave that loose? And I thought there's there's no way I had to come down and kind of go, okay, no, that that is a, a still a useful resource. I you know there's there's a mm-hmm. a big kind of push and partly you mentioned that kind of integrity world of that we need to appreciate the whole thing and get away from individual anatomy. And like, I, I went, no, no, we actually need to know the bits. So it was it was partly that, and then it was the frustration of the the bone chapter. I thought, oh, as part of my master's, I had written uh, an essay, essentially, on on bone formation and uh, modeling, remodeling. I thought, oh, that's great. I can repurpose that by trying to save time and repurposing. It was actually the longest beating <laughs> chapter to write. because <laughs> um, It was written for a completely different purpose and a right, different context. A different audience. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, learn, learn your lesson. So I'm curious, because I know I find this to be the case when I'm writing something. I know what I'm going to write, but then I learn things that I didn't know I didn't know while I'm actually doing the writing. Did you have some Mm -hmm. of those moments and what were they? Probably a lot of the the stuff around the the movement of um, different animals. So I try to use some of the comparative anatomy. Mm -hmm. um, And I really find that interesting and and useful because to my mind, having something to compare our anatomy to makes me or helps me appreciate the the reasons for the difference i was really struck by that 
when when I was reading, I think it's in the first chapter there, and you were comparing our feet to four-legged animals, and in my mind, it was a horse, uh, and how the the front legs and hoofs of the horse and the back legs and hoofs of the horse do different things during gait, and our feet have to do all of the things that their four feet, yeah, it, as it were, do. I think it is particularly with uh, jumping and landing. Mm-hmm. So all quadrupeds, as far as I'm aware, as far as I've observed, when they jump and then land, they will land on their um, forefeet as opposed to the rear feet or paws or hooves. Mm-hmm. Um, simply because of the, the the makeup of the shoulder girdle versus the, the pelvic girdle. So with the shoulder yeah. girdle, they you know, most often don't have clavicles. So there's much more shock absorption in the, the landing through the shoulders. So they got that, that kind of serratus anterior sling. So they've got a very suspensory system to absorb the shock of landing, as opposed to landing on their rear feet, where they would just have the the shock absorbing of absorption through a few joints and then straight into that um, femur to pelvis interface. So they have less less opportunity, less chance to to mitigate the forces. And there's something in the dynamics as well. You, you, you know, if you were to jump as a as a quadruped, you probably want to land um, four feet first. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas for us, we we you know, we would probably break our hands. So our hands are much more fragile. And, we'd, and I think one of the, the most commonly broken bone is the, the clavicle because of falls. Yeah. You know, we're not designed to to take that load on our four feet, which would be our hands. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've we put both the propulsion so the horse will jump from the back foot because of that strong connection so you can push into the ground and that strong connection from hoof into the pelvis assists with the push forward because it's it's strongly embedded within yeah. the, the the pole and socket joint um and for us we have to we have to do both jobs we have to propel and shock absorb with just the two feet that we have. So we really need an adaptable, changeable, pliable, strong foot. Our conversation with James Earls will continue after the break. You've been doing body work for a long time. So you keep saying. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, James and I are really old here. I just want to be sure here. Um, you've been around the block a few times. You might even own part of the block. As a practitioner who came from a very hands-on school, augmented by your education at the Gray Institute in the movement piece, how, how has that changed the way you approach somebody who comes in fresh? Do you more critically start with the feet now? How have, uh, how have you changed things up? Um, yep. Um, certainly, I, the, the intake would be like like anyone else, sit, have a chat, try and get as much information about the client as possible. Mm-hmm. And and it depends on the on the relationship. But you know, ideally, I'm looking for the, the areas of most concern. And that's mm-hmm. yeah, as like anyone. Yeah. All offers would do. It's, that's not necessarily where they're pointing to. Right. So yes, I need to, to look at the feet and this will be again contextual because you know, how much time do they actually spend their feet? Is the, are their feet working as they should 
in order to allow them to do something is the kind of the, the question I think that you're asking. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, are their feats important within the role, the story that they're telling me? So if they are, then absolutely. I need to see somebody standing. I want to see them moving. I have them go through different movements, different reaches, steps. I watch them walking. I might have them hop, jump, land. I want to see how all of their system responds to a wide range of movements, particularly movements that would be replicating something that they do, whether it's a sport or an occupational movement or a hobby, something. So I need to see them in context of movement. I came from a very structural assessment kind of bias. That doesn't really give me enough information. So I, I get some from that. Yeah, we, because, yeah, we, we never really looked at movement till, till much later uh, yeah. in the process. Uh, yeah, I think that, and to me, that, that comes down to, as a general profession, we're pretty rubbish at understanding movement in the bodywork world. <laughs> um, I remember in my training, yeah. uh, as a bodyworker, in a training that was four-fifths bodyworkers and one-fifth movement teacher, or teachers of, or mm-hmm. therapists of some form, mm-hmm. Like the frustration for the movement people saying, why do we keep looking at somebody standing and then put them on this static table and do mm-hmm. reasonably passive work? They do a bit of movement, but it's not really movement whilst they're on the table. Um, why aren't they up and moving? I, I remember my, myself just getting frustrated by them thinking mm-hmm. that everything was about movement um, because I was a body worker. Right, um, and so I, I need to go back and apologize to those people that I was internally <laughs> getting frustrated by. And now I get it. It's like oh, because as body workers, it's like what what is I, you know, in teaching workshops? I was thinking, what is our role? Our role is hopefully maybe mm-hmm. get people out of pain, but I I don't. That's not that's not no longer my my emphasis. My emphasis is can we can I make or encourage people to be more successful in their everyday function. To do that, I need to understand what their everyday function is and how they function within it. For me, table work still obviously has its place and all of the passive assessments, passive passive mobilizations, they're all perfectly viable. I need to get my client up and actually moving in something that replicates, resembles something that they actually do in the real life because that's that's what they're going back to movement assessment is very much part of it the initial intake is part of the reassessment as opposed to thomas test like, well, yeah. thomas test is useful but actually and what's what's the thomas test uh, for oh, people thomas test is uh, uh, hanging your leg off the end of a massage table basically yeah. to check for the length or shortness of the the psoas or the the rest of the hip flexors it's useful it's informative but you know, was, I, I can't remember who I was listening to once upon a time. So what is your, your criteria for letting the client go? And in kind of physical therapy, remedial massage type work, it's mm-hmm. we give an orthopedic assessment, we get the result, we do our intervention, and then we retest. So, and if you pass the orthopedic yeah. test, you're free to go. So, but the orthopedic test has been deliberately designed to take people out of context and be specific to one individual tissue. So you know, we've talked about psoas is a common, yeah. easy, easy example. So if I test with Thomas test and you go, oh, you've got a short psoas, lie on the table, I will tickle your psoas or 
MET it or do whatever mm -hmm. the heck I think SOAS needs. And then I, I retest Thomas test. Oh, you've got a beautifully long and supple and juicy SOAS. You are now free to go. Well, well, but I haven't actually retested. Has the rest of their system recognized or yeah. been educated or able to, to use that new juicy find longer SOAS? Because psoas doesn't need to lengthen whenever your spine, lumbar spine, is in flexion, your knee is flexed, and your foot is passive. It kind of needs to lengthen, and my own bias of just the, the story of during walking. In walking, your spine, lumbar spine, is extended. Your pelvis is rotated. Your hip joint is also rotated and a little bit abducted and extended. Your knee is extended, and your ankle joint and your foot are active that's a totally different neurological motor control setting i need to be able to assess your performance in that i need to be for me do a little bit of work in that position not with soas but with your system yeah. and i need that to be if not part of the post treatment assessment part of the post treatment integration retraining yeah. suggestion well that's just it you have to show them now that you've released or whatever you want to call it and things are yeah. functioning better you have to show them how to use that so when they leave your mm -hmm. office they're they are more aware of the changes and how they're doing what they're doing so that yeah. you get that functional change and then they yeah. say hey it's been two weeks and i felt good most of the time but then you can say okay come back when you need me but i think we're done here is that yeah. how you do it very much, yes. So you know, go through, go through the education, um, and I want to to make my, my clients as as independent as possible. The gray institute training affected and influenced my my own kind of everyday life. I'm much more creative in how I can influence my own tissue, as opposed to reading yet another book on the stretches or the exercises, yeah. which all tend to be the same. Mm -hmm. so, well, with with an understanding of good normal the real life anatomy it's like well i know if i put my feet in a certain position and if i put my hands in a certain position if i move my knee or if i move my hand i know the effect that i should be trying to to achieve so i can do that for myself and it's also i can do it for my my clients as opposed to relying on yet again this stretch book of whatever if i understand good functional anatomy then i don't need to to go through repertoire you you know it because it's in you yeah and you know it's you know my first my first 30 years ago training <laughs> <laughs> the, the first lesson was you know we were teaching a, a holistic approach to to therapy it's like we treat every client as a as an individual and then we will teach you the massage sequence that you will apply to pretty much everybody or go through a training and we will give you the, the repertoire of whatever it may be. It's like, well, that's great. That's kind of what I'm paying for. And that's it. That's easy. That's comfortable in those early stages. Yeah. It's like, oh, I know what I'm supposed to be doing, when I'm supposed to be doing it and grit. But where, is it yeah. really holistic? Is it understanding the, the movement strategy of my client whenever they make a normal movement? 
before we run out of time here this morning, getting back to the book here for a minute, sure. because this is probably the question I get the most. I'm sure a lot of listeners get the most, and it's a hard question to unpack, but I think we should at least uh, address it. Um, mm-hmm. What kind of shoes do you recommend? <laughs> <laughs> I hear that probably more than anything. Yes. And you so, have a whole it, chapter on it here, which is fantastic, by the way. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a short chapter. Um, it's a good one. First, it depends on your foot's hype. It depends if there's a pathology that's present. So if all things being equal, I'm a full believer and supporter of minimalist approach to, to footwear. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is it's a surprise to me that um, even body workers, movement therapists are surprised by the fact that putting your foot into a constricting environment that you know, is the normal fashionable shoe mm-hmm. all day every day is going to have an effect it's like well you know part of our trainings was wolf's law and davis's law that the body responds to demands so yeah. if you put yourself in a binding all day every day you're going to have a probably negative influence so the the excitement at the moment for minimalist shoes i think it's great and i'm, I'm surprised by the i'm excitement. with you on that i'm absolutely with you on that so there was a, a paper that came out, I think it was about two years ago, um, from Lieberman's, uh, Daniel, Professor Daniel Lieberman's stable that said, oh, if you put your foot into a shoe with a toe spring, which is many fashionable shoes, and especially trainers. So, so what's a toe a, spring? Explain toe spring is that upward curve. So if you oh, yeah. lay, lay your shoe flat on the floor and look at it kind mm-hmm. of along the along the floor you'll see that most shoes have an upward curve towards the toes and that's referred to as a toe spring Mm -hmm. so if you actually just kind of play with the 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 shoe you'll find that the shoe will kind of naturally rock a little bit through that so-called toe spring so from the ball of the foot onto the toe and the the influence of that is that it decreases the amount of toe extension that you use during walking because you're getting, you're getting kind of false toe extension. Yeah. It's it's pre extended, so to speak. Yeah. And there's a couple of things. One, you get a little bit of extension in the joints because of the the inner portion of the shoe. Mm -hmm. And then the shoe does a little bit of work for you. So the paper that came out said wearing toe spring type shoes weakens the foot. And this was the, the, um, discussion within the, the paper it sets you up for having a weak foot these two all kinds of potential pathologies sadly that became kind of the headline from that paper toe spring shoes weaken your foot they're evil they're bad they should be burned and there's a contra to that it's actually if you have a pathology if you have a plantar fasciitis if you have a hallux limitus or rigidus mm-hmm. you actually might benefit yeah. from a toe spring shoe because what they've shown is that you actually unload the foot a little bit by having the toe spring. So it could be, to use your example, plantar fasciitis, that would mm-hmm. be giving you more of what you don't have. So it would be remedial to wear yes. that toe spring shoe while you're trying to deal with that condition. Can be. It's a worthy experiment. Yeah, and this no, is, that's fantastic. Yeah. And so toe spring, modern shoes, they, they can be useful. I do believe that we would benefit from a wider toe box. So just to let the, the foot splay a little bit because that opening through the toes, through the metatarsals also and mention it in the book, gives yeah. a little kind of pre-tensioning into the system. So you get a, a tensioning through the fascial compartments, which helps with the, the muscle efficiency, as well as just not crapping your foot and into creating 
probably yeah. a bunion. Nine, nine and a half triple E here. So yeah, I'm all about the wide toe boxes. <laughs> cool. <laughs> um, so in the, the minimalist shoe kind of campaign and you know, go on social media and there are those that are very kind of adamant about the, the, the enlightenment that you will get yes. from wearing minimalist shoes and high heels would be then just kind of anathema. They're, they're just, they, they really are the work of the devil. Yeah. Um, and, and for me, I'm again, just doing a little bit of research. There's a significant portion of the research was saying, well, actually for many people, there are psycho um, sexual benefits from wearing high heels. If, because as a culture, in, in, certainly in Western culture, in, in New, you're close to New York. I'm living in London. Mm-hmm. If you're working in the city, there, as a, well, let's talk about anyone who's wearing high heels is going to be perceived to be a little, well, they will have a little more height. Yes. And unfortunately, we value people more if they are taller. Yes, we do. That's shown in so many different different papers and researches that height is seen as positive, positively correlated to success. Yeah. Which, hey, being from Ireland, did you know Bono's only five foot five inches? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which explains a lot, man. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. So the extra benefit of the 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 perception from the other and mm-hmm. generally we also there's our um, psychosexual benefits you feel you feel better you feel more powerful you can feel more sexy you can feel more attractive by wearing more fashionable footwear i i think we just shouldn't come down as kind of the the, the shoe police and say yes. these are the things that you should wear Yes, let's, let's not shoe shame people. I had a patient once in her late 70s uh, who used to come to me for low back issues. And, you know, she found that wearing a slight heel made all the improvement in, in her back on a daily basis. You know, we're talking like an yeah. inch to yeah. two inches. And I'm like, fine, then wear it. There's nothing, yeah. you know, there's, there's nothing evil about that. If that makes you get through the day better, that's great. Yeah. And for me, it's you know, everything has a benefit and cost analysis. Yeah, and I think there is there are many more benefits to be had from wearing minimal shoes. There are more costs mechanically and physically from the compressions of wearing the high heels, mm-hmm. but there are also benefits from from the high heels. There are also costs to, to wearing a minimal shoe. If you don't have, if you have hallux uh, rigidus, then wearing a minimal shoe probably is going could potentially aggravate and agitate and you mm-hmm. might adapt in a different way for me it's having the the understanding of the that interaction between form and function and it's not just our form and function it's also the environment that we put ourselves into understand what that is actually what effect that's actually having on the way in which we move and if you Listeners want to understand more about the form and the function of the human foot and the environment, uh, the environmental cleanup that you're doing on your clients and patients. This is the book that you've got to get. This is the book that I'm going to work through for the next six or seven months in terms of uh, changing up my practice a little bit, because if you don't start learning different things or new things, you get stale. James, I want to thank you for being on the show today. There'll be links in the notes for where you can get this book uh, worldwide. Is there anything you want to 
mention that we didn't mention yet before we go? No, I'm I'm just I'm really grateful for the opportunity to uh, spend some time chatting. So I know our paths have crossed a few times, and we haven't haven't had time recently to to sit down and have a problem. No, matter. it's been a long time since we shared a pint. Wait yes, <laughs> indeed. So I'm I'm just really appreciative of um, yeah. uh, the invitation. And also to anyone who's actually made it this long through the podcast. So yeah. thank and you for James, listening. I've taken some of his courses. He's a fantastic teacher. I still use some of his functional movement assessments. And they, they have given me information that I would never have gotten in a static assessment. So I can highly recommend his courses as well. James, thanks for coming by today. Well, thank you, David. Thanks for listening to another episode of Body Talk. Remember to support the show at patreon.com backslash body talk radio. Want to get in touch? Find me on social media or email me at bodytalkdavid at gmail.com. Remember to leave reviews wherever fine podcasts are found. And as always, the music you hear on the show is by David and the Disasters. See you next time on Body Talk. Body Talk.